0: Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wisdom and for your awesome power in all that you have done and are doing for your sovereign and glorious plan to bring this world, Father, to its appointed end and ultimately, Father, to a kingdom and beyond. We look forward to these promises being fulfilled. We call for them to be fulfilled soon, Father, we ask for that. We also ask, Father, that we be ready when that day comes, ready by our knowledge of your word and the way it has transformed us and prepared us to serve you better in that day to come. Help us, Father, to use these days we have now in preparation to the most that we can for the best outcome we can, that we would be uh, servants who have taken seriously the call to prepare our hearts. And, Lord, I ask for this uh, night to be one of those opportunities uh, a chance for us, Father, to hear and learn things that are important to you, for you wrote them and you gave them to us, and you did it for our benefit. We ask, Lord, that we'd understand them better tonight, and that we would see an immediate and obvious way that we can put them to work in our lives. I pray this, Father, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week when we were here, uh, we just got into chapter 7, and then we just stopped. We're all, almost right in the middle of something, and it was the moment that God was speaking to the prophet Nathan in David's day, and he was giving Nathan an important promise that Nathan was to turn and give to David. Earlier in that chapter, David had suggested to the prophet that maybe he should build a house for the Lord in Jerusalem, and in effect, he was proposing to build a temple. The Lord had never had one at this, to this point in history. He had had a tent tabernacle in which he housed the ark and the various other pieces of furniture that make up the tabernacle, and David sitting in a very impressive palace of cedar and, and riches of various kinds. Near the end of his life at this point, uh, as this story is time, near the end of his life, he sits around and looks at his impressive home and he, he feels a little self-conscious. And although his heart was in the right place, he more or less uh, decides that God must have something at least as good as I do, if for no other reason but so that he doesn't feel out of place in his opulence. But as we've learned already in this study, good intentions are not an excuse for disobedience. So in this case, David was acting disobediently because he was acting in ignorance of God's plan for both the temple and for the people of Israel and for himself for that matter. So the Lord sends David a word through the prophet Nathan and that word is sent to correct David on his assumptions and direct David a little bit and also tell David what the plan is with respect to the temple and what God plans to do for his people. We're gonna reread Part of what we did last week, just to get the context again, I'm going to start reading again at verse 4. This is where the Lord is speaking to Nathan. It says, But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelled in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I've gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? All right, so the Lord, we remember, starts this uh, dialogue or monologue, really, with Nathan. Now, I'm gonna, from this point forward, talk about this being delivered to David, because although Nathan receives it, we know the intent is that Nathan would transfer it to David, and he does, so we can just skip the middleman here. So the Lord speaks to David, telling David first, you presumed that you had the right to decide for God when and how he would build a house for his glory. And that's a rebuke. And it comes in three observations altogether in what is said here at the outset. First in verse six, the Lord reminds David, I've been content to dwell in tents for hundreds of years since the Exodus. Point being, there's no pressing need for you to change this situation on my behalf right now. In fact, the only reason David had for improving God's lifestyle was because David felt guilty over his own lavish lifestyle. The second argument or the second observation God gives David, verse 7, he reminds David, God never commanded Israel to build a house in any form other than in a tent form. And that comment reminds me of one of my favorite pieces of advice that I give Christians from time to time, particularly when someone's trying to figure out how they obey God, what does God want me to do? And I always tell people, when you wonder what you're supposed to do to obey God, just do the last thing he told you. And just keep doing that until the Lord clearly tells you to do something new. And if you wonder after a while, well, I wonder if there's something I've missed, just go back to that plan, you'll always be fine. Just do the last thing he told you. And sometimes that thing might take a decade or more. It doesn't necessarily wrap up quickly. The last thing God told Israel hundreds of years earlier, was build me a tent. Hasn't said anything since. Not with regard to the house of God. And that's what he wanted then. Unless they heard something new, that's what he wanted. And then the third thing God gives to David by way of observation actually goes back up to verse five. The Lord asks David rhetorically, are you the one to build me a house? The Lord's intimating that David was not going to be the one God chose to accomplish this task. In fact, later David will tell him who he has in mind, and it's not David. But clearly, David has assumed a position of privilege here for himself that he should not have assumed. So altogether, David made three errors here. He ignored history, that is, with respect to what God had uh, uh, been doing and, th- and how God had been working. Number two, he acted without any direction from God. And third, he presumed too much for himself. And those three mistakes, ignoring God's patterns, ignoring God's word, and presuming too much, are always at fault when a believer acts outside the counsel of God's will, always. We overlook the history of what God does and how he does it. We act without a specific word of instruction or contrary to the word of God. And then we assume he wants to use us because it's our idea, because it came to our head right? And because of those errors, we will often move against the counsel of God. And the solution to those problems are very, very simple. It's one simple solution. Just ask the Lord for direction. And you do that principally in prayer and by consulting his word. So notice what David did not do in that regard. David never thought to ask God directly what God thought of this plan. And remember how remarkable we've seen David be in past situations. David is the one who used to seek God's will all the time, right? Should I go up against these Philistines? Should I go up against those Philistines? Should I go do this? Should I go do that? David is constantly asking God what to do and now he gets to something as fundamental and important as whether God wants a house for himself or not and he blows right past that question answer moment and just goes straight into the work. And you know, I could go off on this all day and I won't because we have a lot more to do but in passing... That is typically our problem too, right? You pray when things are going badly after the problem is developed. It's the last resort thing, right? In the foxhole, we pray. Uh, It's just normal, typical. We all do it. Or after something tragic is happening in our life, then we go to this like it's an answer book. And we're like, where's where's the passage about what to happen when a hairdresser does my hair poorly? I need to find what is... You know, we don't have the attitude that I should be studying this thing front to back and then when the problems come, it's all ready. I'm I'm ready to take on whatever God brings my way informed by what he's told me. If we use it in that backward way, we end up always backing in to an understanding of God out of a problem as opposed to avoiding it in the first place. David, in this case, obviously thought either too well of himself or assumed too much about God's plan because he put himself in the middle of a task that was not assigned to him, God had not spoken to him about it, God had not directed anything with regard to it. And so now with what comes next in this passage, God corrects David's presumption, though he does it gently. Verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, I've cut off all your enemies from before you, And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place, not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you, When your days are complete and you lie down from your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. So in this passage, the Lord now moves to making promises to David, first reminding him of some things he's done in the past, and then moving to promises. The promises are called collectively the Davidic covenant, and we'll cover that tonight, looking at it in detail. But starting with the reminders, all of this is directed at reminding David of his importance. And I feel like this is a very light touch on God's part to deal with David's presumption by a mix of correction and encouragement. So he starts by reminding David, look, I took you as a boy from a pasture. You were literally shepherding, and I made you a king and a shepherd over my people. And in verse 9, he goes on to say, I've been with you through everything, through everything you've gone through, Remember, this is at the end of David's life, so not only the time that he was with Saul and then in the desert, but now near the end of 40 years of ruling. And he says, in that time, I've cut off all your enemies, and more than that, I'm gonna make your name great. In fact, I'm gonna make your name so great it's gonna be counted among the greatest men who've ever lived on earth. And that has certainly been fulfilled. You know, there are people who can tell you all about David, or at least something about David, and they've never opened a Bible. There is no leader of Israel, in fact, that is held in higher regard in all of history than David, even after all these years. So clearly that was fulfilled. And in all of this, what the Lord is saying to David, in my words, is even though you're not gonna be the guy to build my temple, you've still got an important role. You're still an important person. Don't worry. You don't have to do it all, David. You can do lots of great things and I can still do other things without you. That's a, another <laughs> reminder that most of us could use. In fact, David's greatness will... Uh, supersede the construction of the temple. That is to say, David will be known for greater things than even the construction of the temple in, his, in uh, the days that follow. Because David and his line are gonna be key to God fulfilling his promises to the people of Israel and to the world at large concerning the Messiah and the kingdom. And those things have far greater ramifications than who gets to build the house in David's day, right? Who gets to build the temple? In verse 10, the Lord begins to lay out that plan. Here are the specific promises that he is going to tell David are now to be his. And uh, some of these promises are repeating or you could say elaborating on earlier promises that God gave other men before David. And there are some new promises as well added on. So first, the Lord says he will appoint a place for his people to be planted, which is a way of saying they'll have a land of their own where they will dwell in perpetuity, there'll be no removal of that land after they get there, and that they'll do it in peace. Now, this is an elaboration on an earlier promise, a continuation of a promise God gave to Abraham and his descendants in the Abrahamic covenant. This goes back to Genesis, Genesis 26. is one. There's several places you can see it. I'm gonna pick the one in which he reiterates this to one of uh, Abraham's descendants, to Jacob. And he says this, sojourn in this land, 26.3 three sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We call that the Abrahamic promise. There's several different versions of it in the sense of where it's spoken, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, here again. But in all cases it's the same promise. God promised Abraham, later Isaac, later Jacob, and their descendants that they would have a land, uh, an inheritance of their own. And later they find out that's in the land of Canaan. And the Lord repeats this promise now to David, but notice in verse 10, as he does so, he still speaks about it in the future tense. So clearly, David's achievements are not the fulfillment of that plan. And There's reasons we see that plainly here, not only the fact that it's written in the present tense, but the key distinction outlined here is living in peace and without being disturbed, meaning without being uprooted again. So the people of God would one day occupy the land that God gave them. They'd never leave that land again. But that certainly had not come true in David's day. That is, they were not living in peace in David's day. He had certainly dealt with his enemies. Um, But look at verse 11. The Lord says, Israel has lacked peace, more or less, off and on, throughout the time they've been in the land, ever since the time of Judges. Now the time of Judges effectively marks the beginning of their occupation. They came in under Joshua, but the book of Joshua is a book of how they conquered, to some limited degree, the land. You get to the end of Joshua, and all the tribes are in their various places, and it's mission accomplished, more or less. The start of the book of Judges, which follows in in terms of chronology, is the first book of the Bible in which you see Israel in the land living there and then what comes from that. So when it says, even back to the time of Judges, that's a way of saying from the beginning, you guys have always had trouble staying in your land, fighting back the invaders or the occupants that were there. So the promise God gave Abraham concerning Israel is of being in the land without being uprooted, without dealing with any kind of adversary, clearly up to the point of David, certainly, and even up till now, That has never been fulfilled. Israel's never seen that time in their history. Even at the longest stretch that they were in the land, it wasn't permanent because they left again after that and then maybe came back and then left again. Now they've come back. The point is there hasn't been any time in history when this has been fulfilled and we know there is still more history to follow. So the Lord starts by telling David, I'm gonna make you great and I'm gonna fulfill those promises I gave to your forefathers and I think the Lord is clarifying to David right here that he still has yet to fulfill those promises to Abraham because it is clear enough by David's interest in building a temple that David has assumed that these promises were fulfilled in his lifetime. And it would have been natural for David to assume that given his situation. I mean, under David, Israel has grown much larger and has become much safer than it ever was before, certainly than it was under Saul. Let's do a simple comparison. Here's Saul's kingdom. And that's the color, colored area there superimposed over uh, the area of Israel. And if you look at that, it's, it's a fairly narrow strip of land. It goes all the way up to the tribe of Dan in the north and then down to Beersheba in the south. That's why uh, typically in the Bible, when, the, when, when someone wants to refer to all Israel, they'll say from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying from coast to coast in our country, okay? But you notice they don't say Coast to coast, because it's never the coast. They always, the coast, in his case, was conquered by the Philistines, and Saul never could get it out of their hands. Never mind the fact he couldn't get some of the Arba, he couldn't get parts in the north. He was fighting back the, the Philistines constantly. Now, fast forward to David's day. That's Saul's kingdom. This is David's kingdom. All right, several times larger, stretching from present-day Syria to the Sinai of Egypt, It included the coastal plains, the Arabah, the area of present-day Jordan, all the lands Saul never could conquer. And uh, as a result of that uh, conquering, that's what the Lord was talking about earlier when he says, I've taken all your enemies away. I've, I've put all your enemies away. There was really very few enemies left trying to encroach on the border. The larger enemies of Egypt and the like were not bothering Israel at this time in history. So the nation is largely at rest right now. You could forgive David for looking at the map and looking at his circumstances and saying to himself, we have reached the point of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He just didn't know what was coming. So from David's perspective, the kingdom seems to be safely in place, secure in the land, the promise is met, and so now it appears he jumps to the end of that and says, well, certainly if God's gonna dwell among us in this kingdom, which is part of the promise, then we need to put him in a proper home here because this is where we're now going to be. So To interpret the covenants of God properly, which David is not doing right now, you have to understand an important principle of Scripture, one that David himself was overlooking right now. I'm gonna give this principle a name. I don't know if someone else has named it something else. This is what I call it. The principle of suggested fulfillment. The principle of suggested fulfillment. So the law says that certain events uh, may appear to, this law I'm making up here, this law of suggestive fulfillment, it says certain events may come along in history that would appear to tell you that God has fulfilled a promise that he's given. As David looked at his circumstances and said, I think God has fulfilled his covenant. But then when you look closer at the details of the covenant and its promises and compare that to the circumstances, you find upon closer examination that your situation falls short of f- fulfillment in some way. Um, and that means that these earlier moments, which seem to get close and appear to be a fulfillment, they're just a suggestion of the fulfillment. They are a hint of the fulfillment. They are an early version, but not the actual fulfillment because they still fall short. And I can give you plenty of examples. Uh, The Lord promised Abraham and his descendants they would occupy the land of Canaan one day, and 400 years later, Joshua crosses the Jordan and the people enter the land of Canaan, more or less. All right? Did that fulfill it? Well, no, because there was a lot of things still missing. Okay, well, we can go forward. Judges. The people set up residence in the land during the time of judges. Is that a fulfillment? No, there's still something short. Then by David's day, well now the nation is virtually everything the Lord has promised. But even then, still it's short of the fulfillment because in time it becomes evident that they will not stay there permanently and they will not have peace forever. So the events that lead up to now with David are all still a suggestion of the fulfillment, a picture, if you will, a way of seeing it before it actually comes to pass, so that you have an understanding of how God's going to, uh, what God has been offering, but it falls short of the true fulfillment. And Scripture and history show this over and over again. If you overlook this law of suggested fulfillment, you become guilty of something called overrealized eschatology, another fancy term which just means uh, mistakenly assuming. Prophecy has been fulfilled before it actually is fulfilled. Mistakenly assuming something has come to pass that has not yet actually come to pass. It comes based on mistakes in not paying attention to the text and looking very carefully at the events and noting whether they are perfectly aligned or not. So I think David made that mistake. I think David made the mistake when he offered to build the house of God. He assumed his reign was the fulfillment and therefore the kingdom had come and he had to build a house for the Lord. And that's why the Lord now appears to Nathan and in my own words says this to David. Yes, David, you are important, and you are gonna have a place in the kingdom, but you're ahead of my plan. In a future day, my people Israel will dwell in their land as I have promised, and then in that future day, they will be free of all enemies, and they will never leave it again, and in that day, I will build a house for myself, and in that day, I'll build a house for you as well, verse 11, but you will not build that house nor will it even come about in your lifetime. And in verse 12, the Lord tells David, his days will actually come to completion before those things come to pass. And then after David, the Lord will raise up a descendant who will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David isn't gonna be king over the kingdom to come because that awaits a future king who will come after David is gone. So David gets a little jolt here through Nathan to know your over-realized eschatology is gonna get you into trouble and your lack of attention to detail has put you in a position of presumption. Let me reset your expectations a little bit. Now, before we move ahead in the passage, you should already be able to see clearly that this future fulfillment that God is pointing David to is clearly speaking of the kingdom with the Messiah ruling, the place we call the millennial, kingdom. that The Bible promises that a kingdom is coming. I'm going to cover some basic stuff because I don't know who's here tonight, but there is a kingdom plan for earth, one in which there is a worldwide empire ruled by Jesus, physically returned to earth, ruling from a kingdom seat in Jerusalem, and he will be king of the entire planet. And the first mention of this coming is very, it's a bit obtuse, but it comes in Genesis when uh, Jacob is pronouncing blessing on his sons at his deathbed, and he looks at the son Judah in Genesis 49.10. Jacob says this. He says, the scepter, referring to the thing that a king holds, which you know, is representative of the king's authority. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So he says, the right to rule over Israel will be Judah's until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a reference to Messiah. It's an Old Testament term for the Messiah. And then when Shiloh comes, when Messiah comes, then it says, to him shall be the obedience of all nations. And that's a reference to the kingdom. So when the Messiah comes to rule, it will no longer be Judah's tribal authority that rules. It'll be this one Messiah who rules, and all nations, not just Israel, will be under his authority, that's an illusion or a reference to the kingdom to come. That kingdom, according to the New Testament te- uh, text, will begin, at, or according to Daniel, it begins at Christ's second coming. According to Revelation 20, it lasts a 1,000 years. And a well-known passage in Isaiah describes this kingdom in ways that line up with what God is telling David right now. In Isaiah 2, verse 2, Isaiah says, it will come about in the last days, The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. All right, you see in that passage, several elements of what David has been told will come when the future is ready for a kingdom and for a temple. First, he describes the place. Israel will be the ruling center of the world, seated on top of a mountain higher than any other mountain on earth. In the time of the kingdom, the highest mountain on earth will be in Jerusalem. And on top of that will be the house of God where God will dwell and he will rule the world. The world will stream to him, seeking his counsel and his, glory and that matches what David heard in 2nd Samuel 7:10. And then in, uh, at the end there he says the nations will not rise up against one another there'll be no more war anymore. That corresponds to what da- David heard when God said there'd be peace in the land for his people. And then if I go to Isaiah 11, you get a few more details. Isaiah 11:10. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people, who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off and Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. So I love the start of that, that the world will look up to the root of Jesse, which of course Jesse is the father of David and then David then being the, the one uh, that whose line brings Jesus. So the root, the one who comes from Jesse, will rule from a glorious place in Israel and at that time the Lord will recover or regather his people in the land, which implies they were scattered. Now think about that for a minute. At the time of the Messiah's arrival, the people have been scattered and then they'll be brought back. That would tell David and anyone who was listening that these earlier moments of gathering were not permanent and therefore are not fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. They're just a temporary step on the path. So in the kingdom, God is saying through Isaiah, through what we read in Genesis, certainly with what we're seeing now in 2 Samuel, the kingdom and all that God has promised through the covenants given to Abraham and later, the kingdom is where all of that is fulfilled. Israel will finally in the kingdom receive what it has been promised, the land, the peace, and now he hears a king and a house. All of that is waiting for the kingdom. Anything that comes along before that time is according to the law of suggested fulfillment. It is a temporary, appearance-like fulfillment, but not the actual fulfillment. And notice in verse 11, I love this line when David hears the Lord say, I'm gonna provide a house for you. So remember how the conversation got started? David offered to build a house for the Lord. Now David's hearing the the Lord saying, I'm gonna build a house for you. And here's what you need to hear him saying there. The Lord is saying, I will do the work to bring about a kingdom. I will do the work to bring about a home for my people Israel. I will do the work to establish all that the kingdom will have in it. You're not gonna do that work, David. You don't bring the kingdom into existence. You're not the one who can fulfill my promises. You're not gonna build me a house. I'm gonna build you a house. You rest in my work. You don't work your own way in. And although David's intent wasn't in that direction necessarily, it did come out of a heart of pride. It did come out of a thought that he needed to do something for God. Does that ring any bells? Anybody here feel like they got to do something for God, and then you get what God is going to give you? Like there's a quid pro quo, a bargain in in some kind that has to be done? God never works that way. There has never been one act of God ever in response to the act of a human being, period. Never once. Only, at best, the appearance of such. That is, God chose to do his work in some way connected to a human action to teach a lesson, but God's immutable will has never been subjected to man's will or man's actions or thoughts ever under any circumstances. God does what God will do and has planned to do from the foundations of the earth. Nothing in his creation changes him who made the creation. And so when you look at God talking to David here, he's correcting David's Presumption to think that they are on some kind of equal playing ground where David does some things for God and God does some things for David and we'll work on this together and I got an idea. What do you think, God? That, That is a natural human way of thinking about relationships. It is not appropriate when applied to the sovereign creator of the universe. So God alone fulfills his promises, God alone does it based on his own might his own power, in his own timing, according to his own plan, and we merely receive the blessing of that. Remember, the covenant God gave Abraham was a suzerainty covenant. That's a term referring to a covenant that is a grant from a greater to a lesser. That grant conveys certain promises, and it is not conditional, nor is it optional. When a king grants a promise to a subject, the subject has nothing to say about it, nor do they get asked what they think, nor do they get asked to agree to it. It happens. In fact, when God granted all the promises to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, he put Abraham to sleep when they initiated the covenant just to make the point Abraham had nothing to say about it, nothing to do with it, didn't you know agree or disagree, he just got it. That's what a suzerainty covenant is. In contrast to a parody Covenant, which, for example, the Old Covenant is a parity covenant, two sides making agreements together. But in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, God said, Abraham, I'm going to do this. Done. And the covenant God is making with David here, guess what kind it is as well? It's also a suzerainty covenant. You can see that because God never asks a question, never gives David any options. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. The condition, the, the promise is unconditional. By the way, the New Covenant, suzerainity. So David isn't asked to accept or agree because God decrees it unilaterally. Moreover, David has no obligations under this covenant. And in fact, the Lord is actually emphasizing to David, there's nothing you can do. I'll build you a house. So the Lord does everything here. Now, up to this point in the text, you can clearly see that the Lord has been uh, addressing the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant through what he's going to do in David's line. And the details he's giving David here, which expound on what he gave to Abraham, are called the Davidic covenant. But the Davidic covenant couldn't stand on its own. It, it doesn't exist except that it is part of what God started with the Abrahamic covenant. So a way of referring to them is to say that the David, Davidic covenant is organically rooted in the Abrahamic covenant, because the first one gave need for the second one. The second one is how God fulfills the first one, okay? Similarly, the new covenant is organically rooted in the Davidic covenant and in the Abrahamic covenant, because what God is doing through the new covenant is itself the further fulfillment of what God has said in those earlier covenants. So it's part of a continuous line of work that God has been Uh, doing through his people, Israel, and ultimately to all nations. All right, so up to this point, we see God working in that way. But all of that that I just gave you was background on the main part of the Davidic covenant. And the main part now are new promises, new additions, an expansion of what God has said before that was not said to anyone prior to this moment. Again, still part of the same progression that began with Abraham, but now we're gonna see that God has got some new things planned that were always in the plan, we just didn't hear about them until now. All right? These new promises refer to David's specific contribution to the kingdom. Verse 13. The Lord says, speaking still about this future king, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, so in verse 13, the Lord says, this future descendant of David, this king that gets to do what David wishes he could do, will build a house for God and God will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. Now, given what you've just studied with me up to this point, you would read that verse and you would naturally refer, oh, that's to Jesus. Jesus builds the temple in the kingdom. There is a temple in the kingdom, for those who may not have studied this, a very elaborate one, far grander than anything that's ever been built before. And in that temple, there is a a holy of holies like there was in the earlier temples. And that is the place Jesus dwells in the holy of holies, according to Ezekiel. And He's there. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a 1,000 years. Jesus occupies the glory of God, occupies the temple as he's done in the past in the millennial kingdom and so Jesus is never outside the temple once he occupies it at the start of the 1,000 year reign. That is his home, that's what we're hearing about here. But as you get into this passage, you go to verse 13, you think okay, this is talking about Jesus building the house for my name and establishing the throne of his kingdom forever. But then you get to verse 14, and you run into a problem, because the next verse says this king will commit sin and be disciplined. So I'm gonna put a slide up with that passage on it. So this is the passage. Now what I've done is I've highlighted in green and in red uh, where this passage works for the person being king, being Jesus, is this king Jesus? If it's in green, then that's consistent with what we know Jesus is going to do in the kingdom. Where it's red is where it doesn't fit. So verse 14, the fact that it says he commits iniquity, well, that can't be Jesus. But if you look down to verse... Fifteen, my love and kindness shall not depart from him. Well, that's certainly true for Jesus. And everything else that's in green there, he will be raised a descendant of, of David. He will come forth from David. He will establish his kingdom and so on. You see all the, all the greens work. All right, so since we know Jesus commits no sin, this problem in verse 14 has led many scholars to conclude, well, the text switches at verse 14 to talking not about Jesus but about Solomon, about Solomon's kingdom. Solomon, as you know, did come forth from David, and he built the first temple after David. Let's do the same thing we did here. Let's take the same passage now, and let's turn the colors based on how it fits for Solomon, if Solomon was the whole passage here. So the problem is I got a lot of red for Solomon, too. Obviously, Jesus did not have sin. Solomon had plenty of it, so verse 14 uh, works fine as far as he commits iniquity. That little piece works, but everything else around it doesn't. For example, verse twelve. Start at the top. Solomon was not raised up after David dies, neither in the sense of being born nor in the sense of becoming king. First of all, we know Solomon wasn't born after David dies. Remember, this phrase says, "When your days are complete and when you lie down with the fathers." So the premise here is, after you're dead, David, these things will happen. Well, Solomon wasn't born after David was dead. That should be obvious. He's, in fact, a grown man by the time this is being given to David through Nathan. But some would say, well, he just means you'll be raised up as king after you die. That's not true either. Solomon was installed as king before David died. In 1 Kings 1, 32, we read this. Then King David said, "'Call to me Zadok the prince, Nathan the prophet, "'and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada," "'and they came into the king's presence.'" And the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come up and sit on my throne and be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Now As a little aside before we come back into this and finish it, look how easily you can fall prey to the law of suggested fulfillment. That's an important distinction. That little detail I gave you nullifies verse 12 when it comes to speaking about Solomon. Solomon cannot be the one who was raised up after David. He technically never was raised up after. He was raised up while David was alive. You might think, oh, that's kind of a small difference. It's those kind of differences that lead you down the wrong path. Like a ship leaving the dock with one degree of error in the heading, At first, it feels totally insignificant. Come back in a week and you're way off course. And that's what we do when we get into the text and not follow it carefully enough. So Solomon cannot be the one that is referenced in verse 12, but Jesus can because Jesus clearly is the descendant raised up after David. And going down the list further, verse 13, we're told here that this king will have a kingdom that will last forever. Well, certainly Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. Solomon's throne didn't even last one generation after he died, split into two kingdoms. So only Jesus' throne goes on forever. And verse 14, the Lord says he will be a father to this future king, and this future king will be called son to God. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever call Solomon his son, nor does Solomon ever call God his father. Only Jesus has ever called God father and set the precedent for us to do so after him. Finally, although Solomon certainly had sin, the Bible never reports in verse 14, the Bible never reports that Solomon was corrected by God by people beating him with rods. No one ever beat Solomon. He was king. So it's a nonsensical statement if it applies to Solomon. Never was Solomon corrected with the rod of men or the strokes of the sons of men. Though yes, he had sin, but that doesn't solve the problem. The rest of the verse doesn't say anything that makes any sense. On the other hand, Jesus was struck with rods. Jesus suffered the strokes of the sons of men. So that leads us actually to the solution to our dilemma, and that is this. I think the translation we have in English for verse 14 has missed the nuance of the Hebrew and the context. And I'm gonna give you a more literal rendering of the Hebrew in chapter uh, seven, verse 14 this way, let's put it on the screen. I'm changing the words now on this page to show you what it would look like in a better rendering of verse 14. Because of sins committed, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the wounds of the sons of men. So God the Father says this future king, whom he calls his son, will be chastened with the rods of men and bear the wounds of the sons of men because of sins committed. Not his sins committed because there is no pronoun in the Hebrew. There is no subject in, the pro in, the, in that sentence. Only the verb is there because of the commitment of sin. Now you can assume it's talking about the king's sin. That would be one way to do it but you can also look at it as an uh, indip- a infinitive a, not a specific sin of the subject but of a sin that's un, uh, not attached to any specific subject. And guess what you get when you render it that way? You get an almost perfect representation of what Isaiah 53, five says. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's the wound, right? He was crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being, fell on him. He was scourged, uh, by his scourging, we are healed. So let me submit to you that the Lord is revealing in this passage that his future kingdom comes because there is a king willing to take the penalty of sin upon himself. Obviously, neither David nor Solomon could qualify to do that. And the father, on the other hand, did subject his son to that penalty. And in verse 15, back to the passage we just looked at a minute ago, his loving kindness does not depart from him. So despite having, and you put those two together, I'll back up here a couple of slides to this one here. Now verse 15 makes a lot more sense If you think about this passage in reference to Solomon, for example, in verse 14, it it suddenly just goes off the rails. I'll be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. Okay, that much works, you know, it's kind of building on what he's been saying. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, but when he commits sin, I'm gonna beat him. Why is that in this passage? I mean, the fact that God disciplines his children however he does it, that's not news. Why would that be in this passage talking about a king to come? And then after that he says, "But but even though I'm gonna discipline him, but my loving kindness will not depart from him? Well, that's not news. We didn't think God's loving kindness went away just because he disciplines us. But it would make sense in the case of Jesus. That is, I will take a son, I will chasten him with the rod, but not because of his own sin. My loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. That last reference to Saul is a way of God reassuring David that his dynasty will not end like Saul's dynasty ended. So if we say, well, let me back up. So the Lord, let me just recap, because I don't want anybody to be confused. I'm I'm giving you something you may not have heard before. I may be wrong, but I believe this is a more accurate view of the text. It fits everything. It's consistent with other texts. So now with that change, you have the entire passage fitting Jesus perfectly. The whole thing's been about Jesus from the beginning. And it's God confirming to David what you think is happening now will not happen until a future king comes, the Messiah specifically, and in his kingdom you get all these things, but not until then. And... That's the key here. This entire passage has been an elaboration on the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That's where it started. That's been the whole thrust. So if you say any part of this is talking about Solomon, you're also saying that the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in Solomon's time because that's what's being said here, that God is doing what he promised in these ways through this king. So here again, you're forgetting the law of suggested fulfillment, and you get to an over-realized eschatology. And this passage is speaking about the future. Look at the New Testament, and you get a confirmation of this. In Luke's Gospel, Luke 131, when the angel's talking about what Jesus is going to accomplish, and he speaks to Mary, he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. When did that happen? It's not happened yet. Here again, the kingdom is when that happens. So in the meantime, Solomon's kingdom, which comes after David, and the temple that Solomon builds after David are not the fulfillment of this promise. But they are earlier events that suggest the ultimate fulfillment. In other words, Here we have another example of the law of suggested fulfillment. When Solomon goes out and builds the temple, it's a suggested fulfillment of what God will do in the kingdom. He is doing in a smaller way what we know is promised in a larger way. The fact that it's David's first son after David's kingdom is what makes it easy to confuse the two because it looks like this is being fulfilled, but it just can't be. Notice in verse 16, the Lord sums up, this is moving past this now, The Lord sums up everything he's spoken to David by saying, your house and your kingdom and your throne shall endure forever. And that is the essence of the Davidic covenant. The three-part promise that says David's dynasty is permanent. Unlike Saul, whose dynasty came and went, David's dynasty never ends. His descendants will occupy the throne forever, but we see that come in gaps, and only when Jesus finally comes and gets the throne for good is it finally fulfilled. But the permanence of that dynasty is not based on David, It's not based on Solomon, it's based on Christ's longevity. Jesus being a descendant of David. And remember last week I said as as David goes, so goes the nation? Well that's why now you're seeing God allude here to the blessing the nation receives as a result. So David is blessed individually to have a dynasty that goes on forever and the nation of Israel is blessed richly by having David's descendant, the Messiah, reign over them as well. As Isaiah says, the the kingdom in the time to come, we'll have as its chief nation on the earth, Israel. All right, so we wait for that promise to be fulfilled. In the meantime, what has God done now by revealing this to David? He is explaining to David why David needs to be patient, being patient to see the promises that God is gonna fulfill in a future day and to be able to accept that in his current day. This is a huge issue for the church now, I think. Not David's particular concern, but in general, the idea that we can advance the plan of God in our own life to get what we want now instead of when it comes in the kingdom. That we can have you know, heaven now in some form. It's the root of most of the false teaching you see with regard to things like the prosperity gospel or the healing gospels. That is this idea that God doesn't want us to be without what we want and he's promised to give us glorious things and the, the presumption is, well, that promise will be fulfilled now that is overrealized eschatology, and it's being manipulated by people who have an intent to deceive you for their own financial gain. So they've taken things out of context, told you that God meant for you to have it now, which is not the fact. The fact is it's a waiting game for us and always has been. And the Bible always points believers back to the patriarchs who received these original promises in the form of the Abrahamic covenant as our examples of patience, They, like David, heard that great things were coming for them and for their descendants, but they also knew, as David has now learned, that those promises would not be fulfilled in their lifetimes. In the book of Hebrews, we're told this, that Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, lived intentionally as nomads. And if you think that they were nomads all ways, and that's just who they were, and that's what everyone did back then, you're not reading the Bible very carefully. They lived in a city, one of the largest cities on earth. God called them out of the city, put them in the middle of nowhere, and the rest of their lives, they lived in a tent. That was not because that was their lifestyle or what their family used to do. They did that because they were trying to make a statement. In the book of Hebrews, we're told this, in Hebrews eleven eight: eight. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going, And by, listen, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Because he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Jumping to verse 13, he says, these died in faith without having received the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So this is such an amazing, convicting testimony. These guys lived, I mean, centuries, decades, well into their hundreds and stayed that entire time in tents, wandering around in a land that had cities that they could have moved into and had homes and lived decent lives, as we think of it, but they consciously chose to remain strangers as it is exiles in this land, land that they knew would be theirs one day. They could have, I mean, imagine walking around every day looking at this, this land. If you've never been to Israel, by the way, don't think of it like Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Israel is like a miniature California. You can be skiing in the morning, and on the beach in the afternoon. It is a beautiful place from top to bottom. It is, a, it is not a desert wasteland, far from it. So in this day, it was probably one of the nicest places anyone could live. And these guys are intentionally staying out of any of the nice places, just wandering around, digging holes for water. And all of this land they know is theirs one day to come. Then in a future day, they own that land, all of it. Why aren't they acting like they own it now? Uh, comparatively speaking, and be like a Christian who says, "Well, I know one day I'm going to have victory over uh, you know all disease, victory over all pain and suffering." So I'm just going to act like that now. I'm just going to tell God, "I want all healing all the time right now." That's what that is. Someone thinking they can take the promise of heaven and bring it to earth now. Opposite to that, Abraham says, "I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take any ownership stake in this land because I don't want anyone thinking that I've misunderstood and I think this is my inheritance." This is not my inheritance. My inheritance comes thousands of years later after I die. I'll come back and get it when God gives it to me. Meanwhile, to make it clear that I don't think this is my country, I'm going to live as if it's not, which is the basic call on the Christian's life, right? You cannot serve two masters, God or money. You know, if you make this world what you think heaven should be and you grab all that it has, you have made it appear as if you don't have any confidence in your future inheritance. You don't You're not thinking about what God has said you have coming. You're only thinking about what you have now. It's the the attitude of our life reflected in our living. So that's the example, the patriarch example. If you go to the end of that chapter in Hebrews 11, look at how it ends. He says, all of these, meaning these people we just talked about, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better. That's the message of scripture. You will not receive what he said you're getting now because if it came now, it comes in a trivial form. Whatever wealth this world has pales in comparison to what God has prepared in the kingdom. Whatever glory you find in this world pales in comparison. Whatever reputation, honor, uh, anything you can seek for yourself in this world. I mean, just ask yourself this. Do you honestly think in your own efforts you can give yourself something here that you'll enjoy more than what God can give you in the kingdom? Do you honestly think you're capable of doing that? Is there anything here that can compete with what God is gonna give you? Isn't it Paul that says, no, it is not entered into the uh, mind of man, nor has I seen all that God has prepared? There's, there's not even a glimmer of opportunity for you to appreciate the, what's coming. And so any attempt in a kind of let's make a deal way of trading what you have now for what's behind door number two, any, any attempt to try to take something now in place of what's coming in the future is folly. And it's a lack of faith. And the writer goes on to say, at the end of chapter 12, still kind of building on the same thought, he says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So you gain your approval by God through faith alone, yet you have not received what has been promised, you will not receive it in this lifetime, because he's got something better. And that better comes later. A kingdom that cannot be shaken, he says. And so now, the acceptable thing you do in the meantime, try to make this world heaven? No. Try to grab what you can while you, no. Serve him in reverence and awe. That's the acceptable response to knowing your privilege comes later. Saved by faith, serve him now because he loved you. That's the the, the summation of all that. That is the lesson God's showing David. I'm not saying he gave him all this, but he gave him the heart of it, he's saying, you have chosen to advance the plan in a way that it's not consistent with where I'm going. Give it some time, David. When it comes, it comes better than you can ever imagine. Don't try to build me a house. Let me build you a house, all right? And the permanent home for God to dwell among his people is in the kingdom. All right, now the chapter ends. If you had been David, you hear this you understand what God's planning to do and how much of it comes through you and your line and all that's being offered. It's suzerainty. God never said, David, because you did these nice things, okay, now I'm gonna get, you know. There was no conditions. God just shows up and says, this is your future, much like he did when you came to faith. Now what? What's your response to that? Look at verse 17 and to the end of the chapter. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David, and then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God. And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you've redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth and you have promised this good thing to your servant and now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. You kind of get the sense David is just kind of just bubbling over and just babbling at this point, right? It's like when people pray in small groups, Dear Lord, Dear Lord, Dear Lord, and every other word is Dear Lord, Father, Dear Lord, Father, Dear Father. It's just this way of just heart expression without any understanding of what to say, but it's, you just got to get it out. And that's what's happening here. Let's look at it just briefly as we finish. Because it's, it's, it's really what it appears to be David's response to, Lord's, to the Lord's revelation. And it's exactly as you might expect and hope it would be, given what was re- revealed here. He is astonished at God's grace, and he is humble over God's choice. David says, who am I? Who is my family that you would bring me this far? That, in my experience, is the first and always the right response to someone who recognizes they've received God's grace and, and in God's sovereign choice. When you realize God made a choice and brought you into his grace and you had nothing to say about it nor any reason to receive it or deserve it, your first response is, why me, Lord? Why me? How come me? And you know the answer to that? There is no answer to that. That's the definition of grace, unmerited favor. Stop looking for how you merited it. It's not there. When you realize God God chose you to be part of the family of God for no reason except his grace, it just leaves you in awe. That's where it all starts. Secondly, David says wonderful things that God did for, for him and his family, but he says those wonderful things, I love this line, he says they're insignificant. In comparison to what? In comparison to his having received God's revelation of future things. That, in my experience, is the proper second response. That is, you naturally start by giving thanks to God for all the blessings he's given you and all the things he's promised you. Oh, this is amazing, God, thank you, who am I? And then the next thing that you should kind of say out of your mouth is, but beyond all that, thank you for your word. You know, you, and I think some Christians kind of struggle to understand this truth, but the longer you walk with Jesus, the more it makes sense to you. That is in the early stages of your walk. The Bible, okay, you know it's yeah, it's good, and pastors know it, and you know sometimes I read it, but oh, I get the joy of the Lord in worship, or I get the joy of the Lord in this event or that event, and we're kind of pumped up for God, pumped up for Jesus, and that's good. You can build on that, but that doesn't last. That is that emotional response can come and go depending on the seasons of your life, but the rock, this doesn't fade. The world passes away. This doesn't go away. And as you di- invest yourself in this, you come to realize, man, this is the greatest gift he's given me. There's nothing like this. Everybody else comes and goes. Everything else comes and goes. Riches, you know, read Ecclesiastes if you want to know what that's like, what Solomon thinks. This never changes. And you can base your life in this. And when you have heard from God in a way like you can through the word of God, you realize that's what you needed more than anything else you possess. And verse 20 David just says, it's left me speechless because you know my heart. So every mouth is shut in the presence of God, and everyone feels the blessing of the word of God in time. It just takes time. Moving to the end, David begins a a series of praises of God, of his name, his glory, his work, the great things he's done, um, the fact that his word is is the most powerful force in the universe, infinitely more powerful than the universe itself because he made it with his word, and uh, the promises that he's made now cannot be stopped. He sees that truth at work in the details of what God has given him. I'm summarizing this because I don't n- need to just repeat it all. This is, I think, also a response of people who've seen the word of God working out in their life. You know, as you learn this, and then as you see it actually playing out as David is anticipating here, you begin to realize this thing gets things done. This thing has power. God's word, it doesn't just go out as a suggestion. It happens and nothing in the universe can change it. That is a really nice thing to know when you're, when you're basing your life on the promises that are in this book. Notice he says in verse 21 that the Lord has done all this greatness to let David know the future. Do you realize that what he just told David, you know because you got it too, and then you got a whole bunch of stuff David never got. You got much more of what David is calling the greatness that God has let him know. You have got it all. So, how, I mean, I just don't think people marvel enough at the idea that they can open this thing and they can know the mind of God any day they want on on virtually anything that is of any importance. All right, in verse 22, he sums up saying, God, you're great, none like you. And all of this is according to what we've heard. Now, remember, the Word of God was mostly an oral tradition then, so he's saying, effectively, what we would say today is, it's, you're just like we've read, you're just like you say you are in your Word. You notice a little pattern here in this, in, in this first, you know, the first two thirds of this prayer. God is love, uh, God has love and mercy and greatness and so on, but all of it is directing back to his word. What he says, he does, what he says is what he means, it tells you who he is, there's something about his word that's central to David here, the revealed word that David received. And then finally he recognizes the importance of Israel. Now this, this is not news to David, I'm not saying that it is. He just reaffirms it here. You're clearly working something special. Think about the history of the nation up to this point. David's at a very high point. I mean, big, expanded kingdom, lots of peace. But historically, they've struggled to stay in the land. They've struggled against their enemies. They've been weak and uh, under oppression from all sides. He just heard a promise that said, in perpetuity, your nation will exist. It will never cease. And it will be the chief nation, effectively. The Messiah will rule the world from it. No enemies, peace. I mean, in a secular way, if I could assure you that your current nation would never pass away, you would feel much better about world events going forward, wouldn't you? You might come and go, things might happen, but you're not worried anymore. But as long as the possibility exists of a disaster, you would have reason to worry. He just took the disaster possibility off the list. And so David is now fully praising God for being the God of Israel. His people will never be extinguished. Finally, David says at the end that this revelation gave him the courage to pray your courage to pray or let's put it in a broader context to simply testify concerning God to anyone in any way grows as you devote yourself to the understanding of God's word it's not just cuz you transfer information into your head it's the way you build a relationship with God as that relationship goes forward you change inside as you change inside it gives you courage to speak and, and to act in ways you wouldn't have done before that is the uh, we use a little phrase here when you teach the bible good things happen And it's not because I figure out what you need and I put it in the sermon, or even that we read something that relates to something in your life on that day. It just has a supernatural effect, building effect over time. You teach and learn the Bible, good things happen over time. And David's experiencing this here in a very fundamental way. And he now rests in those promises. That's the effect you're seeing here. A man who was stirred up to do something in the beginning, uh, maybe out of guilt, maybe out of self-consciousness in his luxury home, Whatever his motivation, he's now in a completely different state of mind. He's ready to just rest in the promises of God knowing he's got it, there's a plan, it's all gonna work out, not gonna be up to me anymore. I can just let God handle it. Resting in the word of God. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Just rest in the word, I'm resting in the word. Have you ever thought they were talking about feeling drowsy maybe when they read the Bible? I mean, that can happen too, but that's not what that's saying. I once shared a plane flight with uh, Henry Blackaby. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He wrote a, a Bible study called "Experiencing God," and we were—he was sitting next to me, uh, and uh, I didn't recognize him when I first sat down. So we passed most of that flight in silence, and it was at night. And I was—I I took out my Bible, started reading it that uh, on that particular flight, and I soon fell asleep because it was—it was late in the day, and so as we're preparing to land, and I wake up. I finally recognized that this guy was Blackaby. And I introduced myself and I apologized for not speaking up earlier. And he, he, I always remember his response. He said, oh, it's all right. I can see you were resting in the Lord. So <laughs> that is not what we're talking about. Uh, Truly resting just means truly relying on what you've learned and depending on it and letting the, letting the urgency or the need to fix something or change something or bring something to pass that's already been promised, well, just let God take care of it. He's gonna get it done in his timing. It's a nice weight off the shoulder of someone who thinks they gotta fix the world or fix their family or fix their spouse. They can just let God work on that and they just devote themselves to what the Bible has given them to do, knowing it's the rock. Okay, that's where we're gonna end tonight. Let's come back next week, chapter eight. Meanwhile, we'll finish with prayer and get into any Q&A that you guys have for me tonight and uh, go to about 8.30. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as David did for your word. We acknowledge Lord God as he did that you are great in all ways. Your word is powerful and able to do all that you command through it. And that you have promised us great things by your mercy and grace alone and we are thankful, Father, beyond measure to have been included in the plan of God by your grace. We thank you for the revelation of your word and what you gave to David that we have learned tonight to see how carefully you have planned for this kingdom to come and all that it will contain for our sake, how glorious it will be, how much we long to see it and we know one day we will and probably sooner than we imagine. And we thank you, Father, that it is coming and will come. And we ask, Father, that you would grant us all the courage we need to testify and to serve in the meantime, Father, knowing what has been provided, what is coming for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.